It is the 11 Dubcast. I'm Johnny. He's Andy. We're back for another week. We're approaching something. I, I think things are starting to move. It's It's been a theme of the Dubcast for the past month and a half, but I will say that I do feel that things are starting to accelerate. Decisions are starting to be made. And that's going to be kind of the theme of this week's podcast. We're going to talk about all the different things that have been changing and, and discussions that people have been having and maybe what some of this is going to look like. Have you been enjoying, Andy, the re- re-emergence of these sports leagues? Is this something that you've been following and watching? Or are you are you happier than our good friend Dave Portnoy is about uh, <laughs> the, you know, the return of professional sports? I wondered when you opened that question if you were going to mention uh, Grumpy Gus, yeah. <laughs> El Jefe Grande I or whatever. sports back now. Well, sports aren't that good. I actually don't want them. I'm like, what what life must be like if you go through the entire thing pissed off about something and and literally what three months later are pissed off about the exact thing that you were pissed off about not happening to start with? It's like yeah, you well, grunt and like grind at all, all times. Like yes. I love chocolate. No, too much chocolate. That's, <laughs> but but that's the that's the Portnoy fan club in a in a nutshell, right? Yeah. So yeah, I've I would say I've been excited for people who are into these sports. Most of the sports that have started back up aren't necessarily the ones that get me the most excited. So college football, uh, college wrestling, those are some of my favorite things. Now that said, uh, there have been some great freestyle wrestling matches that have happened over the past few weeks. So I've I've been enjoying those. Watched more MMA probably in the past few weeks than I've ever watched, which which is has been fun and good. So yeah, I'm excited that sports are back. Uh, I'm I, I'm excited to see that some professional sports leagues are apparently doing a pretty good job. You know, NHL yeah. uh, being a prime example, NBA being a, a relatively good example of hey, this can work. We can we can make this happen and keep our players healthy and, and relatively safe. Uh, and then you have Major League Baseball, which is the antithesis of that. Where yeah, terrible what, example. The whole uh, Marlins franchise is dead, if if I remember reading that right. I saw there's another series was canceled this week. So, you know, it's yeah, pretty much like a mixed 13 bag. members of the, of the Cardinals are, are confirmed to be infected, something like that. So that's, you know, great. Probably the, the two biggest things that have me excited about the return of sports, uh, one being that the Jackets are going to win the Stanley Cup. So, yeah. you know, Blue Jackets, I'm I'm all about it. Uh, the second one being that um, I'm really enjoying the on and off again. Reds are going to win the pennant, <laughs> oh <my laughs> depending God. on what day of the week it is. Fellow Reds fans, uh, I know you and I <laughs> both as SOBs have have some hereditary <laughs> interest in the ball club on the banks of the Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and it's gone back and forth from, you know, the first first game had serious uh conversations with friends who are loyalist red fans are like yep this is the year and a week later they're like oh yep bullpen's terrible this isn't the year <laughs> i don't know why any reds fan would game. ever this is the year <laughs> i don't know why any reds fan would ever jump the gun on anything that optimistic <laughs> that's really dumb for a reds fan to do and particularly just a fan of cincinnati sports in general like you never you never do the Cleveland mistake, which is we got it. This guys, we got this. Yeah, this, this is the is year. year we're doing it like that. Don't, don't ever fall into that trap, especially if you're from Cincinnati. That's not, that's not how we tend to roll. Um, Vado's, you just gotta wait for back. Vado's Vado's back. back. It's all yeah. good. It's all uh, good. Moose is back. Hopefully they, you know, I mean, Joey <laughs> Vado has been making some crazy contact in games. He looks great for a dude. He's older than me. 
Um, and I think that's kind of insane that he's playing at the level that he's playing at. But yeah, their bullpen sucks ass. Uh, the thing is, and, and the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, we don't tend to lump all of these together because we, we view them so differently, but we really should because of the money involved. And, you know, the, the fact is these organizations organizationally, like the way they're structured really aren't that much different from each other when you really get down to what they're asked to do, you know, create a schedule, create protocols, you know, make media deals, all this kind of stuff. There are a lot of things. There are a lot of similarities between major league baseball, NHL, NBA, college football, et cetera. My point is, is that the sports leagues that have started up that have opened are essentially the ones that are successful are going to serve as a template for college football. And we have seen what works, what works are pods, what works are quarantining teams in a very specific place, forcing them to abide by certain rules and then getting some games done. That's work. That's done. Okay. They've done large amounts of testing in the NBA and the NHL. Looks like that's going okay. Major League Baseball has basically said, eh, you'll figure it out. And then that hasn't gone so well. The reason why I'm concerned about college football, at least in terms of scheduling, and we're going to get to that in a second, is it doesn't seem like the NCAA or Power Five, you know, athletic directors or however they're organizing themselves and talking with each other, doesn't seem like they have a really, really coherent, concrete plan, at least on the level of what the NHL and the NBA are doing. And it seems a lot more like an MLB situation. And you know, Ramsey, <laughs> Ramsey put this question on the website, which was, you know, if you're creating the schedule for Ohio State, you know, and, and you're just completely revamping it for 2020, do you put the Michigan, like, where do you put Michigan, right? Where, how do you, how do you like decide where you want to put these high marquee, high interest games on the schedule? And I'm like, put Michigan first and then put them in the like declining order of interest because you're just kind of hoping to get as much ad revenue as you can before they just say, you know what, too many people have this thing, we're shutting the season down. I am not super optimistic based on what I've seen is what this rant is about. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but I am seeing a much more Major League Baseball situation right now in college football than NHL or NBA. Oh, the the analogy, uh, if you were picking a sport, it, it would for sure be, I mean, at least the ones we've talked about would be Major League Baseball because you have larger numbers of, of people involved, larger numbers of teams, um, you know, the, the approach. And this comes back to the, the bigger issue of, of how we as a society are dealing with this pandemic. Uh, everything rises and falls on leadership. Uh, that, that was a John yep. Maxwell quote I remember um, from some of my first like high school leadership conferences, like going to the state student council conference or something. I was a sucker uh, as a kid and still am in a lot of ways for John Maxwell books. Of course, John Maxwell being another, uh, you know, proud son of, of the Buckeye state. Mm-hmm. So Maxwell, you know, put it, put it perfectly. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And so when you look at the leagues, which, which of the commissioners, you know, would you say are pretty effective versus which ones would you say, uh, not terribly so. And of course the one football fans will come to mind right at the top in, in terms of that latter question would be Roger Goodell. Well, which, which league hasn't necessarily articulated a super coherent, here's what we're doing strategy yet. <laughs> oh, it's football. And which right. one has players who are like, uh, you know, maybe I'm just not going to do this this year. Oh, uh, it's football. And which one is kind of leaving the individual franchises to sort of, as you said, figure it out. Oh, it's football. And yeah. here again, same thing with, with college football. Um, 
well-known Bill Connolly stan that I am, uh, Bill Connolly had a good piece out at ESPN, I think, Monday, um, talking about a, a better future for college football. We're going to talk more about some of the issues he addressed in his article a little bit later in the, the dubcast. But one thing that he brought up specifically that is super um, apparent in the context of the pandemic and what the heck are we doing with college football is that college sports, this I'm, I'm quoting from one of Bill C's subheads at ESPN.com, college sports must provide proper centralized leadership that governs the sport and faces proper oversight. The NCAA doesn't have a, for lack of a better term, commissioner for college football, right? You have, you might think of Mark Emmert uh, as the titular head of the NCAA, but then of course you have the presidents of the various universities on the board of governors behind that. And the conference is all kind of doing their own thing to certain degrees, but there isn't a really effective central leader for college sports in general and college football in specific, who says, here's what we're going to do relative right. to COVID testing. And all of you schools in the FBS will do this. There hasn't been a, here's how we're handling testing and quarantining. Here's how we're handling it's basically been every conference and more, more directly every school for themselves, which is a lot like what you've seen with Major League Baseball, and it's become a pretty big cluster for some of these ball clubs. Well, and you saw, I mean, you saw the the tweet where they're talking about Virginia Tech and everybody's you know kind of clustered together, nobody's wearing masks, there's a hundred people around. I mean, that's yep. you know people want to pretend like, wow, I can't believe Virginia Tech would be that stupid that's probably the norm i would imagine at most college football programs like they're Mm -hmm. not following the strict protocols i think ohio state is probably doing a pretty good job comparatively um but i would imagine most colleges aren't most football programs aren't and it's not necessarily i think because they lack the capability to do that i just don't think they want to do it i don't i don't think they want to do it i don't think anyone's forcing them to do it so as a result they don't and look when you have a bunch of people who are in a sport uh, with a very, very like, you know, when it all costs kind of mentality. Well, if they feel that they're getting some kind of, um, you know, disadvantage in terms of competitiveness and, and whether or not they're going to be able to to beat another team because, you know, one team practice better than another or something like that, then they're going to do what they can to secure the competitive advantage. They're not going to follow a rule or a suggestion that isn't being forced upon them. So I just, you know, I want to believe all of this is going to work out. But as you said, this is this is a very disparate kind of thing where there's just there isn't kind of a unifying force saying this is what needs to happen. And as a result, we're kind of like watching these all of these decisions be made in piecemeal. So Notre Dame, for example, we're going to talk about that, you know, essentially joining the ACC, (laughs) which, you know, you could argue they kind of did by default, you know, several years ago. But the point is, is that it's, it's all of these decisions are being made in real time without any real plan. It's just kind of reacting to whatever the situation on the ground is which is understandable because this is a difficult and new situation. It also means that, as you said, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of leadership um, for this particular problem. And that's, that's really the issue. So I don't know, man, it's, it's weird. It's odd. Um, The other thing that I wanted to talk about though, and and this is what I think is really interesting about this from a macro level is there are going to be a lot of structural changes. I think to college sports in general, at the end of all of this. And and I don't think we can really see how much things are going to change quite yet because we're in the thick of this. And because it's, it's really no end in sight. We focus on the immediate 
thing that's right in front of us, but I think there's going to be some significant major changes to sports in general uh, for a very, very long time going forward. This is going to have reverberations for a very long time. And, you know, you can talk about, for instance, like what's the power five going to do? Are they going to kind of form their own, you know, basically organizational structure and, and kind of, you know, get rid of the NCAA. Um, the one that I wanted to talk about though, is the thing with the PAC 12, this kind of reflects what Northwestern attempted to do with unionizing uh, players several years ago. Uh, they have a list of, uh, it sounds demands, but that's what they call them. PAC 12 football unity demands. They talk about health and safety protections specifically for COVID-19 um, they talked about uh, the financial uh, sustainability of sports, racial injustice in college sports. They also talk about economic freedom, uh, which is something obviously that college football players in particular have been talking about for quite a long time. Things about likeness rights and, and getting paid. How do you feel you've gone through this? Are there any of these that really stood out of you? Um, any of these that you thought were particularly attainable or kind of pie in the sky. How do you feel about this list of demands? How far do you think they're going to be able to get to go with this? Yeah. So I, I think the problem is they've already lost in the court of public opinion, at least among fans. So, mm -hmm. and, and the reason I say that is because, and, and when you read their, um, their piece in the player's tribune, it's kind of down at the bottom and uh, in, in the last group of bullet points where they talk about fair market pay rights and freedoms. And, and the number one thing they say is that the Pac-12 should distribute 50% of each sport's total conference revenue mm -hmm. evenly profit, revenue. among athletes in their respective sports. So, so in other words, what, what they're in essence saying is that athletes should be um, ostensibly employees of the conference and that 50% of top-line revenue should go to the athletes. Uh, so for, let's say... Um, what, what, what we were talking a few weeks ago, the big 10 brought in $200 million in revenue. Is that what it was? Something like that. Some, oh, some, Ohio State no, no, Ohio State brings in 200 yeah. million. So it was, uh, whatever it was, but we I mean, were talking, you know, literally billions of dollars across the power five conferences. And so we should, we should take half of that and distribute it evenly to the players. All right. Well, what we're really talking about is football players. So they say each sports total conference revenue. Well, mm -hmm. only two sports are sports that are consistently in the black and that would be football and basketball. So we're, we're going to distribute that pool. And that, and that 50% figure is where I say they've lost in the court of public opinion because it's a ridiculously large sum of money on top line revenue. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll give the caveat that I'm assuming this is a negotiating tactic and that, okay, you start with 50 and you'd settle for 15, yeah, I mean, you know, whatever it is, soul, <laughs> you know, if, if you need but, five cents, don't ask for three, ask for yep, 10. Right? Yep. Yep. So, but we've started with a, and so people see the tweet, PAC 12 players demand 50% of total revenue. So the other thing they're saying, so this number one, it comes off exceedingly greedy on the parts of the athletes to ask for half of total revenue. Uh, mm -hmm. It comes off that way. I'm not saying I, and I'm not giving you my opinion, but, but this is how it looks in, in the PR spin. It looks incredibly greedy, particularly in the light of the kind of general acknowledgement that if college football doesn't happen this season, uh, there are going to be programs that go out of business sure. be, because of this. Uh, and then also what you're also saying is we really don't give a damn about non-revenue sports at our universities. Because it's it's widely acknowledged that college football 
is what props up the entire college athletics economy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not just paying for football. It's playing for literally every other sport. And oh, by the way, you know, it doesn't even do that at some schools where, you know, student fees and, and other, you know, subsidies from the university come into play. So, so that, you know, to me, it comes off as, hey, we know we are the people with the leverage and screw everybody else. So I, that that's where I think they've, they've kind of gone off half cocked. Most of the rest of it, though, you use the Northwestern example um, from a few years ago and, and that their ill-fated um, attempt to unionize. I actually think most of what they ask for beyond that is most of it's pretty reasonable. Okay. You, you want COVID protections. I, that's sensible, right? That you want, to, what you're basically asking for is for somebody at college football to have taken leadership on player safety standards, COVID-19 and so on. Uh, things like, um, you know, ending racial injustice in college sports and society. I mean, I generally think people support those things in, in a broad sense. They may dicker over the details, but they by and large are supportive of, this sort of concept of, of racial equity, uh, you know, among athletes and school and so on and so forth, things like uh, medical expense coverage and, and giving uh, say six year athletic scholarships so that people can complete their degrees regardless of their um, athletic eligibility. And you're already seeing movement within individual conferences and individual schools towards several of those things, right? Like the, right. the idea that your scholarship is there for you regardless and, and so on. So I think there are a lot of good things in their um, in their list of demands, which I agree just sounds like you're acknowledging that you've got a gun to the conference's head. I just think it's probably dead on arrival because of that top line. We're demanding 50% of the conference's total revenue. Sure. Oh, and oh, by the way, they said, um, you know, Larry Scott, conference commissioner, and all of these administrators and coaches should voluntarily and drastically reduce their pay. Well, they should, but that's 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 not going to happen voluntarily. Uh, <laughs> drastically, maybe yes. Voluntarily, that's oh, that's not going to. Here's the other one that got me, like as as a sign that the players don't understand, you know, or whoever wrote this. Um, I'm not just talking about who bylined it, but whoever actually wrote it. Like they have in this when they're talking about uh, the administrators and coaches should voluntarily and drastically reduce excessive pay. Mm -hmm. um, they they have a little bullet point in here about ending facility expenditures and using some endowment funds to preserve all sports. Uh, you know, they put a little asterisk. As an example, Stanford should reinstate all sports discontinued by tapping into their $27.7 billion endowment. Newsflash, endowments are not piggy banks yeah, they're that not, you can not like raid them. when the checkbook balance goes low. And... Right. When you look at the things that the donors of Stanford University likely tagged their endowment funds toward, it probably wasn't the athletic department. You know, that $27.7 billion is probably your more marked toward things like, you know, biomedical research and, you know, other, other academic fields of endeavor that people support at Stanford University. It's not the rowing team. Yeah, it's it's usually biomed it's usually medical research and or aerospace um you know technology things like that. Yeah, uh, you you can't just go tap into and Ohio State has what a 5 billion dollar endowment or 10 billion dollar endowment that. whatever I, it's like, I mean it's I think it, it's it, like 4 to 5 something. Yeah, like it's that. it's a goodly quantity of money but but if Gene Smith's like dang we're we're hard up this year because of covid, he can't just go to the checkbook and write a check out of the endowment. It's no. that's literally the opposite of what an endowment is for. 
Right. So that's and, and I agree with you that that is not that's just not going to happen. Um, I I kind of go back and forth on this because in one sense, I wonder how much leverage players have in this situation, because I can see arguments for both sides on this. On one sense, I can totally understand, like right now, sports need football to stay financially solvent. At least a lot of them do. Um, and as a result saying that you're going to like boycott, well, it may not happen anyway. So, you know, where's your leverage on that? If the season doesn't happen at all because of health reasons, on the other hand, if it does happen and they do want to go forward with it, then you have a lot of leverage because then you can kind of dictate the terms of what's going to happen if you can stay together. And if you can, you know, manage to, to have your, um, your opinion heard as far as the, you know, the stuff that you brought up, I agree that the idea that you can have, you know, 50% of each sport's total revenue, you know, divided evenly between athletes and their own sport. I mean, that doesn't mean much for a rower, right? That doesn't mean a whole lot for a field hockey player. And also it means that they might lose their scholarships and you would have to drastically reduce what they're doing because they wouldn't be able to continue their sport. I, I agree. I don't think that's particularly something that can get done. Um, I know it's not something that get done. It's 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 a non-starter. However, that I do want to respond to something specific that you said, which is that they kind of lost, you know, the element of public opinion. They kind of lost in the court of public opinion already. I think no matter what athletes do, sometimes they they lose no matter what. I, there, I think there's a certain amount of people who, if any athlete says, "I just want some level of compensation for what I do," whether it's likeness a stipend, whatever. And I know they get stipends, but it, you know, like uh, an actual like salary for essentially being employees, which let's face it, football players and basketball players essentially are. Um, but anytime any athlete suggests anything along those lines, no matter what the, you know, request is or the, the idea is people immediately, some people just immediately shoot it down. Like that's not it. That's not amateurism. That's not what college sports are about. So I think on the face of it, it doesn't matter what they ask for. A lot of people are just going to reject it out of hand. As a result, if that's the case, I can see why somebody would be like, well, then let's just shoot for the stars because it doesn't Mm -hmm. really matter what we ask for. Mm -hmm. It's going to get laughed at. People are going to turn their noses up. But regardless, Mm -hmm. the other thing I would also say is that it could be one of those negotiating tactics where you put something in there and people are like, well, that's crazy. I can't agree to that. But I can agree to a lot of these other things. And as you pointed out in this list, there's a lot of really important, good stuff. I mean, we're talking about like, I'll read the mandatory safety measures, player approved health and safety standards enforced by a third party selected by players to address COVID-19 as well as serious injury, abuse, and death. That should absolutely happen. That's a great idea to have Mm -hmm. a third party monitoring uh, programs, Mm -hmm. particularly in terms of health and abuse. We've seen that happen all over the place in yep. college sports. And maybe if we had had that stuff like, you know, Strauss or Nasser, Nasser wouldn't have happened. So I think there's some really important stuff in here. Um, but I agree with you. There are definitely some non-starters as well. I just think the larger thing that I want to know is how seriously the PAC 12 is taking this and how much leverage players actually have. Uh, some of these things aren't going to happen under any circumstances, but I think other things that they list here absolutely should. Yep. And a lot of that's going to depend on a, if we have a football season at all uh, and B how seriously this is taken. Um, because I think I forget who pointed this out, but like one of the 
the real difficulties that you have. And I totally agree with this. And I wish I could remember who said it or where I saw it um, with getting any kind of activism or like, you know, unified players movement started in college football is that, you know, first of all, a lot of players may not agree. This is a large, you know, variable population of people from all over the place who may not necessarily agree with that. And secondly, the people who are really going to be into it and activists, they're going to be gone in five or six years max. Yep. So they may not be able to sustain something like that. Um, It's a really difficult situation, but it's fascinating. And I don't think it's something that would happen without, well, I think it would happen, but maybe not get this much publicity without COVID-19. I mean, obviously Northwestern attempted it, but I think it has much more impact now in the situation that we're living in. Yeah. And it's, and it's a challenge because I, I agree um, with, with most of what you said there too, about the, the, these things are pretty important. And, and, you know, it's again, another indictment kind of on the NCAA for failing to articulate any real strong leadership on a number of these issues, like yes. uh, talking about uh, player approved health and safety standards enforced by a third party. Like that's something that, you know, you could reasonable people could look and say, that's really smart. And why aren't you already doing that? Or, you know, a number of those kind of things. Um, some of it, you know, comes back to what's your, what's your philosophical stance on amateurism versus professionalism. So mm-hmm. things like they, they talk about ending performance and academic bonus as well. You know, understand why those performance and academic bonuses are in there. Performance bonuses are, you know, one of those things that are included in a lot of jobs at the higher end of the pay scale, um, you know, whether you're talking about sales, you know, that's commission, you're, you're incentivizing a certain kind of behavior. Okay. I want you to sell more. So commission incentivizes that. All right. For a football coach, you are being hired to win big 10 championships. So we incentivize that the academic bonuses get added in because you also want to incentivize them not to just be quote unquote football factories, and to ignore the the student part of the student athlete appellation. So we want to say, hey, coach, if your players are at least at whatever uh, academic progress rate percentage or a certain percentage of this GPA, because those are those are things we want coaches to care about too, right? We want them to care about your academic success. So so I sort of get why they say, oh, we don't coaches shouldn't be paid a hundred thousand dollars because I got good grades or whatever it is. But we're paying him to care about you as a whole person, not just as a machine who catches balls or right. what, what Although, it be. So I mean, I go back it, and forth. What does that, it right? say about what does it say about that? That that's something that has to be incentivized within a contract, though. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I but, can understand somebody seeing that and going, "Like, man, that's that's kind of messed up." That I have to that we have to pay coaches to give a crap about a student athlete's academic success. Well, so it comes back to where you know where do you want them to prioritize their time, right? So, right. so I mean, that's that. that yes. Uh, on, on the face of it, <laughs> you're right. And at the same time, like if I'm a college football coach and I'm paid $7 million a year to win the big 10 conference and my school really doesn't care about academics all that much, I, you know, yeah, I want my players to do well, but I'm not going to stress about it. Now you put a right. hundred thousand dollar carrot in front of that. Hmm. You know, so then that, that again, I guess is the difference between the Woody Hayes era well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Woody Hayes stalking his, you know, his, yes. his players to make sure they're going to class and screaming yep. at him. You know, like that. You have to have a certain um, mentality for that. And and Woody Hayes, for all his, you know, 
weirdness and deficiencies in some ways was very legitimately concerned about his players academic success that is not that's not like a you know a legend or you know a myth about this dude he was no, a, it's a real thing psychotic about that yeah and that's that i want to say that that's like reflective on the coaches but it's not just reflective on the coaches reflective on the business of college sports yes. which it really is and yeah. and i guess that's my overall what point. he didn't cash all of his paychecks and he was making about 30 grand a year <laughs> i know he made no money <laughs> you know he operated one year contracts he, never got right. he didn't care um he, he was just even have an agent i'm assuming no i don't you yeah. know he was like, fanatical about two things winning and what his players were doing and he wanted them to be educated and he wanted them to be upstanding members of society which meant not hippies which is fine but the point is is that he's he coaches like that don't really exist anymore because of the demands of the sport and that's that's not because coaches are bad people i'm not saying that i'm just right. saying that the sport is much more different it's much different than it was in the 1950s 60s and 70s yeah what it, he, it he didn't have a private plane you know that he got 50 hours a UC year for recruiting purposes, you know, like that. Right. <laughs> yeah. That was not, that was not in the landscape. And, and, you know, to kind of put a bow on this whole discussion about the PAC 12 demands. Um, and, and I, I, I really liked Bill Connolly's piece at ESPN because he talked about, you know, that we need to do at the very least, the restriction free rights for students, athletes to profit off their name, image and likeness. Okay. So we've yeah. got some traction on that. Now it feels like, People are generally on board with that, um, and and rightfully so. Uh, also, you know, he talks about the idea that college athletes need to have negotiation power and basic rights uh, regarding healthcare and educational opportunity, which comes back to the thing we were talking about: um, Northwestern unionizing, um, you know, or, or having some sort of players' representation at the table within this kind of rulemaking process, giving the players some sort of agency. Uh, and I don't mean that literally in the sports agent, but, but some sort of agency in the decision-making right. process. But, but from a philosophical standpoint, I think a lot of us as fans would probably be on board with the notion of the students, the student athletes, the football players should have some walking around money that we get, you know, cause, cause I'm one who very much agrees with the concept that it, it annoys me to no end when people say, oh, they play for free because they don't, they don't play for free. They stay in extremely, you know, free room, room and board and housing and, and, and meals and uh, tuition and uh, you know, the support of full-time academic tech tutors and uh, sure. some of the best trainers. I mean, if you wanted to train with coach Mick in the private sector, what would you pay <laughs> to train? You know? So, I mean, this is a real thing, right? I mean, I, yeah. I used to pay hundreds of dollars every week as a fat middle-aged guy to go train with a personal trainer um, and, and was worth every penny, you know, you go in and train with somebody like coach Mick, you were, you're going to pay through the nose for that. Okay. So, so these are real values. Now, the problem with that is you can't eat tuition and you can't buy your girlfriend uh, flowers with room and board and so on. So I'm, I'm very much on board and have been for several years that the players need some sort of workable stipend. I kind of always liken it to the stipends you get for, you know, grad students teaching or research um, fellowships or whatnot, that there, there should be something like that. And, and the name, image, and likeness thing that to me is a, is a given. And Hey, by the way, maybe if there was some sort of, uh, you don't want to call it a union, call it a player's association, whatever you want to call it, maybe we'd get uh, NCAA 
video games back again, right? Like, <laughs> they, like there could be some some benefits to fans uh, if we would if we would do this right. I'm just not on board with hey, give us fifty percent of all yeah, revenue. Well, every player right. is not worth four hundred grand a year. They're they're yeah. just not. Well, and they do they do specify that it's it's the sport that they actually are playing that they're going to get the the money from. But my point, my overall point is that I think this needs to be taken seriously. Um, I think parts of it are being taken seriously. As you mentioned, there's a lot of traction with the name image and likeness stuff, because Mm -hmm. that's to me, I don't see any argument against that, frankly, like people talk about, well, it could be abused. You know, what if a player does that? Well, you can set up restrictions on that. You can Mm -hmm. tell them that they have to report whatever they do. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's part of, of being an employee. You, you have certain, you know, restrictions on types of things that you're allowed to do. That's okay. Uh, within the context of your job. Um, but I, I don't understand, like, on the base of it, how you could argue against that. The other mm-hmm. thing that I think is really important that they mentioned in there is guaranteed scholarships for a certain amount of time. Six mm-hmm. years might be difficult to do uh, just because of numbers of sports. But I, 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 people do not understand how easy it is for a college to, like, gray shirt a guy or nudge them off to a different team. You know, th- this kind of stuff happens a lot. They'll freeze people out. Um, it, you know if we claim to be really concerned about graduation rates and whether or not people are getting a good education, all that stuff, you've got to really provide them the means to do that. And they may not succeed on the field. You may recruit a five-star guy and they don't play like a five-star player, uh, but they should still have the opportunity to get an education. And I think that's, that's a big thing. So those are two things that I think are really hard to argue against. And if properly contextualized, I don't see that, you know, I don't see a lot of pushback. I see that as a victory for players eventually. And they do need legal representation because, you know, when we're talking about, as I mentioned before, we're talking about Virginia Tech having a hundred people together, you know, and Mitchell and the team's looking at that and going like, what is, what is wrong with these people? What are you doing? That's that, that has to be more uniform. Players should have a means to speak out against that and say, look, we want there to have, we want you to have protocols that are going to be followed and, and adhered to. So, you know, it's, it's interesting times and this is something that is going to continue to evolve for years to come. It's not something that's just going to be over in the next few months. This is something that's going to, like I said, it's going to reverberate throughout sports, not just college sports, but all sports for years and years and years. It's going to change a lot. And I, it's hard to really see now exactly what is going to change because it's, you're right in the middle of it. So and well, I let's, think let's, let's talk about some change. fun things in, in that, that aspect. Cause I, I, I feel like, you know, if maybe, maybe people who aren't as, uh, plugged into some of the, 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 these issues as you and I are. And I, I mean, I find this kind of interesting, this kind of structural evolution and, and change in the sport and, and mm-hmm. so on. Um, but there could be some really fun things come out of this too. Like we were, we, we alluded to Notre Dame earlier. Uh, Notre Dame, because of the pandemic is, is basically being dragged by hooker by crook to finally join a conference, even if they're yeah, not saying that. they're joining a conference uh, to, uh, after you know, a generation's worth of, of touting their vaunted independence, which means next to nothing um, right. in the modern era, at least in this sports fans um, estimation, they're now going to ostensibly be part of and could be playing for <laughs> the ACC championship this year. Love it. Now, I, I love this announcement. The ACC came out um, late last week with its 10 game schedule. So now you've got the ACC moving to 10 game schedule. You've got a 10 conference game schedule, I should say. The Pac-12 
uh, announced uh, about a day later. They're moving to a 10-game conference-only schedule. The SEC, of course, uh, about the same day, announced its plan for a 10-game conference-only schedule. So, I, I mean, I think that's everybody, right? So, uh, you only have 10 teams in the Big 12, right? So, yeah. And then Big 10 had already announced it was going. So, that's the, the gang's all here with a 10-conference game schedule. That, to me, is something I'd love to see continue long-term 10 conference oh, yeah. games, more, more good football, less buy-in games. Let's get rid of the buy-in games altogether. Sorry, FCS schools. I don't mean to be a hater. Uh, I realize that totally disrupts their economic ecosystems. Sure. But Notre Dame joining the ACC. Uh, and, and what did you think about this ACC schedule? Here are the highlights to me uh, that, that we're going to play 10 conference games, no division, top two teams based on conference winning percentage will play for the ACC championship. That's the way it ought to be. Tell me I'm wrong. No, I agree. I think, I think that's, that's a good way to try to hash it out. I, <laughs> I mean, in my perfect world, you would have some crazy, like, you know, Mad Maxian thing where it's just like, okay, this is the Ohio conference. And so now it's just, you know, Akron and Toledo and Ohio and Cincinnati. <laughs> And Ohio State and Ohio We're State. We're coming for you, there. Oberlin. Vengeance will be mine. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, you know, that is how maybe we could we just lock down the state and everybody plays college football against each other within the state of Ohio. But if you're going to do it within a conference, which is still ACC geographically pretty damn big conference, right? It goes yes. entirely up the eastern seaboard. Um, but regardless, I think that's a good idea. Uh, I. Look, there shouldn't be as many. This is a whole other rant. There should not be as many college football games as there are. We don't need three out of conference games where two of them are against crappy teams looking for a million dollar payday to lose by 50. I, I think that's absurd. Um, I love the idea of conference playing in the conference more often and then having maybe one or possibly two out of conference games, but probably just one to kind of establish the tone and, you know, get the season rolling. Uh, but I think it's great. I think it's really great, and I hope that kind of scheduling continues because, for whatever reason, it just it makes everything feel more immediate, and it stokes rivalries a little bit more. And I don't know. I mean, because of the way sports has been done, we love you know in the '90s we loved the idea of uh, the National League and the American League playing, and you know love the idea of going down the SEC, and that's great. But we took that idea right where you play these out of conference games against marquee opponents and then you keep expanding it, you keep adding it to it, but you can not always add marquee opponents. So you end up adding, you know, Buffalo and, you know, Florida Atlantic. And as a result, you kind of water down the whole idea. So I like the idea of kind of compressing that going back to the conference, you know, infighting, um, keep it regional keep it fun i think it's great i, I really like the idea i think it's yeah, awesome I, I hope it continues like i said I, I would love to see some of the things that come out of this become permanent fixtures of the game let's move to I, i'm on board with the 10 game conference schedule frankly yeah. instead yeah. of the, the, the nine game uh and then give me give me two non-conference games give me one of them at the beginning of the season and give me one of them uh in place of chicken shit saturday <laughs> Uh, and, 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 and then SEC is like breaking out in the sweat, just looking at each other. Like, Oh God, that's, that's, that's what I want to fan, right? You know, give me, give me a big marquee out of conference matchup early in the season. See where my program's at compared to the other power five conferences, you know, power five only against power five. 
uh, that, that, that's what I want. And then give it to me again, right before rivalry weekend, you know, keep, keep the rivalry game at the end of the season where it belongs. But right before that, uh, let's, let's, let's find really, let's, let's stop this nonsense of scheduling college football games 15 years in advance. Like we're, you know, willing our China <laughs> pattern to our favorite grandchild. Right. I, we, we, we don't need to be doing that. We're, we're figuring it out on the fly now. Let's go with that. Gene Smith gets on the horn and calls, you know, his counterpart somewhere else is like whoever ends up being USC's uh, athletic director of the week. You get get on the phone with them and say, hey, you know what? Next year, let's give it a go. And and it makes for better matchups, which, hey, by the way, going to solve some of the big problems that you have with college football in terms of attendance because you're going to get more good games. Who cares if you miss a game, you know, versus insert, you know, favorite Mac doorstop here. Right. No, no shade against the Mac schools, but I, I don't need to go sit in the horseshoe at high noon on a September Saturday when it's 850 degrees in CDEC, uh to watch Ohio State abuse a Mac opponent for a million dollars. I don't well, need to, I don't need to do that. I can watch that from my couch. But guess what? If you're bringing Florida State to town for a 330 game on that same Saturday, I'll be there with bells on. I'll buy yeah. the first three rounds. Let's go. Well, and to back up that argument, even if it's, you know, whoever like Toledo, whatever, even if it's a bad big 10 team, I think people are more apt to want to watch a bad big 10 team yeah. play Ohio state than a bad out of conference Sunbelt team. Um, just because it's a big 10 team. And yes. if it's, and if it's Purdue, for example, you're like, Oh, we got to freaking beat Purdue. You know what I mean? Like that's yes. there, there's, there's more of a give a damn because you have more familiarity with the school that you're playing. I enjoy playing teams like Hawaii, for example, every once in a while. I'm, I'm okay um, with that. Yeah, but the the year in year out of just fodder, it's not. I don't think it really helps anybody out. Um, and, and get 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 rid of the divisions. You know, get rid of the divisions. And I like this thing uh, with with what the ACC is doing. I don't know if every conference is, has signed on for doing this yet, but top two winning percentages go at it. Let's let, let's do it because the the regions, you know, the divisions they're kind of contrived anyway. And and you end up, <laughs> you mean you have it in the SEC where one division is light years better than the other you've got it yeah. in the big 10 now where one division is light years better than the other and and that you know when you do it the way that these divisions end up you end up with a really you know kind of lopsided experience with your conference championship game so then you're like what's the point of the conference championship game we could have just decided this the way we did before we had them right which yeah. goes back to your thing about we don't need, you know, 40 million. Now, I'd, I'd argue with you, you know, give me 16, 17, 18 college football games. I'm, I'm there, <laughs> but maybe, maybe maybe not that many, maybe not that many. But but I, I like, you know, I like the 12-game schedule. I like the the conference championship and then a good playoff. I agree it will probably have to change if we get to an eight-game playoff, which I think well, is that's where what I'm saying. You know, we're moving. It'll, it'll have to change. I, I grant you that. But, man, if you could give me – if you could just give me – 10 good conference games, no divisions. Cause then every conference game matters, right? Yeah. Every conference game really matters. Even that, that Sunday or Saturday high nooner in September versus Rutgers, you know, it, it matters cause you, you want to go undefeated in your conference to make sure you're going to be in the championship game. Well, real quick, uh, anecdotal story from my life. You know, I, uh, you I know, love my, those. <laughs> well, I had, you know, I've had juice since I was a young child. I've, I've, you know, orange juice, grape juice, all that kind of stuff. And, um, I always thought you were talking like the urban Meyer concept of you no. know, hashtag juice. No actual okay. juice. Apple juice. You know. All right. I'm, I'm here. 
So, uh, you know, I get to college and I'm living in a, in a duplex with a bunch of other dudes. Well, two other guys, I guess. And we're all paying money for this duplex on Summit. And I said, you know what? I want to make some juice. And I go out and I mix, I, I buy some uh, frozen, you know, concentrate. And I put it in one of those jugs and I follow the instructions and I drink it and I spit it out. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> what is wrong with this juice? And... <laughs> Why is there so little of it? <laughs> and I didn't realize that my entire life, you know, my mom had been watering <laughs> down that juice. She'd put in twice as much water as she was supposed to put in. I thought that's what juice was taste like. And I was like, juice is a lot different. And I don't drink a lot of juice anymore, but I've gotten so used to the watered down juice that maybe I've just, you know, got the Stockholm syndrome and yeah. I can't drink juice any other way. I gotta go water. It's too, too juicy. Um, so I think maybe that's the way some people feel about football and, and, and maybe, maybe we're just not, we're, we're so used to this watered down product that we're not really appreciating the full richness of what football could be when it's a little more condensed and a little more, you know, like involved and, and complex and flavorful. So I'm, I'm now, uh, I'm now contractually obligated to watch the classic film trading places after we wrap up the recording, because I've now been thinking about the the Ginter household's consumption of frozen concentrated orange juice. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Which, which as we know, was the, the, the central MacGuffin of yes. the classic Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy film. Uh, man, that's such a great movie. It is a good movie. Um, I don't think you can make it today, but it's, uh, it's one of my favorite films of all time. Ed, Ed, I mean, most of Eddie Murphy's early comedy you couldn't do today, but yeah. I mean, an Aykroyd totally sells yeah Aykroyd's maybe one of the it's hard to say this given all he's done but he may be one of the, the most underrated comics like you don't talk about Dan Aykroyd being a comic genius but yeah. dude dude totally sold that role um so watch him do that and then go watch him do um oh I can't remember the colonel's name but he did Sergeant Bilko with Steve Martin you know this is 20 oh, years yeah. apart in these two films and Sergeant Bilko is just one of those it's not a great film per se but it's a hoot and a holler because you've got Steve Martin, Dan Aykroyd, and Phil Hartman in the same movie. Chris Rock in, a, in an early cameo um, as as a, a an uber nerdy accounting hatchet man from the DoD. <laughs> it, it's just it, it's a it's a hoot and a holler. Uh, but, but yeah, Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places really sold uh, the the Winthorpe character, and, and he was the uh, uh, he was the dude in Tommy Boy. He was the the auto parts guy. Well, and and <laughs> not one of his more major parts, but one I, I don't. I, I had to think about that for a minute. I'm like, was he really? Yes, yeah. yes, he really was. Uh, so you know, the pine, you know, what a little, what a little heavy on the pine tree perfume there, son. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a car air freshener. Well, the first step's recognizing. The second step is uh, washing it out. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's that's classic. And and the hair thing, you know, the hair shtick that was. And great. I remember seeing that movie, Tommy Boy. What year did that come out? Was that? Was that 93, 94? What, what I would year say was it? Like 95, 96. I can't remember. It's that one was of that late. Harley class movies. Oh, it was. I remember seeing it at, at the Star Cinemas in Hillsborough, Ohio. Uh, that was one of the. It was one of. I don't want to say one of the first movies, but uh, but I definitely remember going to that movie like without my parents. Like that was one that I went with some friends to see, and yeah. just laughing like a bleeding idiot. Um, it's a great movie. Bo Derek still a ten. Still a 10. <laughs> Tommy Boy, by the way, this is getting off topic, but Tommy Boy is, in my opinion, a true Midwestern fairy tale, right? Where you've got a rundown, uh, like, 
mono factory culture town that's you know going out of business and that's the bumbling so idiot who doesn't know anything he he ends up you know fixing it and and doing what he's do and he's selling it with good old midwestern gumption and they go to chicago yeah. which is like you know the mecca that everybody wants to get to to prove that their world leads it's it, it is a true midwestern fairy tale and then he goes back home you know to ohio and it's yeah so I, it's it's a great movie, and it's, it's the one scene that I think where we... he lights the dude's model car on fire in the desk. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just. Yeah. I mean, gosh, that's pretty guy good. gone way before his time is. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Um. So we want to remind you that the Eleven Dub Cast is sponsored by the Dry <laughs> this, Goods. This store. lengthy digression sponsored <laughs> by yeah, the... this, yeah, this, this lengthy digression about <laughs> SNL uh, comedy movie alumni and all that stuff. It's sponsored you by the Dry Goods Store at 11warriors.com, uh, drygoods.11warriors.com, uh, shirt, hat, stickers, all kinds of great stuff, and masks. Definitely check that out. Um, let's do a little Ask Us Anything. Remember, you can ask us anything by sending us questions to dubcast, D-U-B-C-A-S-T, at 11warriors.com or at 11dubcast on twitter we have a question this week from sam and sam asked us this is you know we have a lot of really pointed questions about the uh you know the sports arena and what's going on in the news and then we have some questions that are not about that and i like the latter category a lot <laughs> so this one's from sam and sam was like you know he he was looking at some past dubcasts and he saw that we had talked about other people's pets and things like that he just wants to know Two questions. One, best type of dog. So what is the best dog to have for a family? He mentions a family specifically. And then what is your favorite pet that you've ever had of all time? All right. I'm going to take, I'm going to take the last part first and I'm going to give you two answers. Um, so my first dog was a German shepherd. Uh, and, and my granddad, uh, on mom's side had a kennel and bred German shepherds. So my, my first love uh, among critters, dogs in specific, but critters in general were, was the German shepherd dog. I, I still think that is one of the all around best, um, best animals because they're, they're so good at so many things, good family dog, but also if you need a, you know, a guard dog, watch dog, they're great at that. If you, you need a mm-hmm. you know, dog to ride in the cab of the truck with you out on the farm, they're great at that. I just love that dog. They always talked about how when I was a kid and, and we're talking like toddler age, right? So very, very young because Spike, um, Spike got cancer and, and put him down. Oh God, I don't know. I was probably four, you know, three, mm-hmm. four, pretty, pretty young. I just remember Spike. Um, but I remember mostly the story. So dad, dad's a farmer. Um, mom was a school bus driver, but took off a few years when I was born and stayed home, um, with me. And, and then subsequently my little brother, um, before she went back to work. So she would be picture her, you know, kind of uh, cleaning up lunch dishes there in the farmhouse where we lived. Dad's out in the field farming. He's come in for lunch. We've had lunch together as a family. He goes back out into the farm field. At that time, you know, they would put me out in the backyard and we had kind of a sandbox and a fenced in like chain link fenced in backyard there at the farmstead. And she could watch out the window while I played with the dog or in the sandbox or whatever, little little tyke type things um, in the safety of that fenced in backyard. And she could be there looking out the kitchen window. Well, somehow one day I unlatched the gate. And was going to go ride in the tractor with my dad. So here I go, you know, two or three year old me toddling off out across the field. Well, 
this is not an overly safe situation for a variety of reasons, not the least right. of which being that, God, what happens if dad runs me over with a tractor and planter or something, you know, not good times. So Spike, in true, you know, Lassie, Timmy fell down the well, um, <laughs> you know, form, barks and lets mom know something is not right. She comes out and discovers, oh, the gate is open. And Spike leads her to me halfway between the house and the field where dad was out doing whatever field work was going on. Like that nice. was the kind of dog he was. So that's that's kind of my nostalgic answer. And no dog has really compared to Spike until uh, our current dog. And this leads into my question, the answer to the first part, the best dog for a family to have. And I, I'm, I'm going to give my public service announcement for the breed, uh, the Norgen, Norwegian elk hound. So Ooh, we have right two, we have two Norwegian elk hounds in our house. And after living with um, Dash, the wonder dog, our, our elder dog is now 16 years old. Uh, I've lived with Dash now for nine years. Um, first dog I've ever lived with in the house, Spike and all our German shepherds were outside dogs. They were farm dogs. They had a dog, you know, dog box and a kennel outside and they lived outside with treasured members of the family. But, uh, you know, on the farm animals just don't live in the house. So when I met the stunning Mrs. Vance, you know, she'd already had dash for several years and she is a very accomplished dog trainer has done very well in obedience and agility with dash. And I, you know, I start living with this dog when, when we bought our first house together, and I quickly realized Dash is the best dog um, ever created. And I get a little choked up because <laughs> we are at this, we're at this stage of his life. You know, he's 16 years old. Every day is a gift. And for, you know, nine years of my life, this dog, when we want to go, he goes. When I'm working on my desk during the day, he sleeps under the desk and is content to just be here. Uh, unlike some other Northern breeds, like I love Siberians, but they're super high energy. I love border collies, but you've got to work them all the time or, you know, they'll get destructive habits. Oh, yeah. these, elk, these elk hounds can go all day or they can sleep all day. They will go on hikes with you as we we did with um, our younger dog beast over the weekend. They'll, they'll go hiking with you. Uh, they will, you know, Miranda used to take um, dash out rollerblading. You know, you can do anything. You can leave them with your kid. You know, we've got a seven-year-old kid. Um, you know, Dash Dash looked after her from the time, you know, she was a wee baby. He'd lay down beside her baby blanket and just be there with her. Great watchdogs. Uh, I just think they are the perfect family dog. And we're we're almost to the stage as a breed of being a, an endangered species because there are just so few people who have them as as family dogs. And it's really a shame. So if if you're um, either either an individual, so Miranda got um, Dash when she was a, a single woman living in an apartment and he was a perfect apartment mate. Uh, or if you're a family with your 3.5 children and you want the perfect family dog, find a Norwegian elk count breeder. If you don't know how to do that, hit me up on Twitter, slide into my DMs, shoot me an email, <laughs> or contact form, whatever you want to do. Um, but get a hold of me. I'll, I'll hook you up. They're, they're amazing dogs. All right. There's my little quasi choked up PSA about no, it's great. no count. So hit, 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 hit me back, uh, with, with what, what rocks the Ginder family's world. So I, you know, my family didn't have my immediate family, you know, my mom, dad, sister, uh, we didn't have a dog ourselves until I was maybe 10 or 11, but I'd always been surrounded by dogs because everyone else in the family had at least two or three. Yeah. And, um, I, I, a lot of different types of dogs, big dogs, huge, huge, giant, you know, like English setters and all this kind of stuff from Shepherd or whatever. Um, there was one dog I really loved. It was my cousin Jason's dog named Spaz. And he was just this insane, uh, like 
I don't know, Jack Russell Terriers peed everywhere and he was ridiculous, but he was really sweet. Um, I would say though, I think the favorite pet that I have, I mean, I love my dog now. We got, we got a dog. uh, He's like a rat terrier Doberman mix named Lincoln. He's a really good dog. Nice. Uh, But I think my favorite all time, still probably the first dog that my immediate family got named Sandy. And she was a really weird dog and we've adopted all of our pets. I, I, I'm a really firm believer in that. I think it's really important. Uh, But my mom went to uh, pause in Middletown progressive animal welfare society and you know she's seeing all these dogs freak out my mom hates dogs she's she's she grew up being terrified of dogs but you know our family wanted a dog and she was willing to do that so she wanted to go and see what kind of dog she could handle and she sees all these dogs you know losing it and running around and barking and then she sees one dog just kind of sitting and staring in the middle of its kennel and not really doing much and just kind of chilling and then she's like that's the dog for me mm-hmm. and when she hits sandy home Sandy, for the first three years that we had her, was like the most destructive, insane force of nature that you could have ever brought upon our household. She destroyed hundreds of dollars worth, probably thousands of dollars worth of things. She would consume, like we had a, we got my grandpa an herbal tea box that she ate the entirety of. She would eat chocolate cake. She just, she would eat the bindings of books because she liked the way that it smelled. Um, she would take watches and eat the leather straps and then spit out the actual watch part. She would eat Q-tips and roll it around in her mouth until the cotton was gone and spit out the <laughs> spit out the stick. She'd eat tampons. She was just an insane, crazy dog. Um, but we loved her. And the older she got, she calmed down and whatnot. Um, but she was just highly intelligent, really fun, and uh, you know, just a really loyal dog. And to me, I'm a little biased because I really enjoy dogs like that. She was part yeah. hound, which I love yeah. hound dogs. Yeah. I love the way hound dogs bray and the way they sound um, when they bark. And, uh, you know, she was just very, like, intelligent. So I really like intelligent, alert dogs um, with a little bit of hound in them. And that's, that's I think, the dog that I've always been kind of, you know, interested in looked at my entire life. I will also say I had a rabbit named Flopples when I was a little kid. Yeah. Floppy yeah. rabbit. That was fun. Had a hutch in the backyard. We kept him in. It was good. Good times. Yeah. Uh, I had a, a, a goldfish named Baby Beluga after the Raffy song. Mm, had that guy for about three years. Really enjoyed him. So, and we have a cat now. And this cat, Jasper, I like. I'm not usually a cat person. He's an incredibly friendly cat. You can do whatever you want to him. He's also the most annoying, irritating animal in the world because he's entirely food motivated, and that's the only yes. thing in the world that he cares about. Um, a couple nights ago, he, uh, was just, he acted like he was dying. He was just like clawing at something. He was like screaming ah! and it's cause he had killed a mouse and he was like super proud of himself and he wanted of course. to, so, you know, fun stuff like that. But that's my, that's my personal take on it. Thank you for sending that question in. Great um, question. Continue. Yeah. Great questions. I love reminiscing about animals. Please continue sending those questions in. Uh, we love answering them and, and please continue listening because it's fun to do the dubcast and we will do another one next week. Uh, and until then, I'm Johnny. I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time.